All right, we're continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer this morning. Um, we'll be in Matthew 6, verse 9. Um, I, I one time heard John Piper do a sermon in which he opened by saying, I have three introductions. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? Um, I told my wife this morning that essentially this one verse could be five sermonettes because there's so much that is couched within just these terms. Every term is pregnant with meaning. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I'm not gonna preach five sermonettes. There's no way we can exhaust all that it means here this morning, just this one pregnant verse. But we will try to do what we can to at least give you enough to be able to wrestle through it and study it in your own devotional time. But the key, the, the thing that we wanna make sure that we don't miss is that every single word that is in this prayer, the whole of it, and in particular, these, this opening verse, the point of it all is that God would be glorified first and foremost. For those of you who know the Shorter Catechism, question one says the chief end of man is what? Yeah, what I love about that is, is the two things that are there, and we tend to often emphasize the first but forget the second is that in glorifying God, we actually have the opportunity to enjoy him forever. And in glorifying God is, is where our greatest joy lies because he's the provider, he's the creator, he's the father. And so my hope for us is that what we'll discover all throughout um, this prayer is that every single phrase has the intent of seeing God glorified. And if we miss that, then we're not going to get out of this prayer what Christ actually intended. And so this is the reason that he opens in the way that he does. And so one of the things that he says uh, all throughout this prayer that you're going to notice is that all of the pronouns are in plural. Our, us. Why do you think that is? Because Christianity is communal and nothing else. Now, maybe you, as a radical Western individualist, have some serious problems with that. Well, you have serious problems with God because he saves a people, not a group of individuals who have little sections of heaven all to themselves and little parts of God all to themselves. Now, this is, this is a communal issue. This is a communal prayer. This weekend, there was a protest in Charleston, South Carolina about the, the Confederate flag. And the, and the protests actually turned ugly. There was a huge fight that broke out in the midst of it. And there was this beautiful scene when the smoke had cleared. There was an African-American young guy, college student, um, who went up and, and grabbed a group of the Confederates, as it were, and prayed with them. And it was, it was the most stunning and, and beautiful thing I think I have seen in a long, long time. And it was a genuine prayer. He didn't take any time to kind of, back, you know, stick them backhandedly. It was a very genuine prayer for their safety and for their souls. And he hugged those guys when he was done. And he, he, he said, I, I pray that you guys would be safe out here tonight. He didn't get into any kind of theological discussions about the history or heritage of the Confederate flag. He didn't get into why it, it, it can be a hateful image to him. He didn't get into all that. What he did was he prayed with them because he recognized that there is an hour aspect to this whole thing. And I think that we, we 
forget that, and we do ourselves a supreme disservice when we forget that the Christian life in its full only works in community. It does not work in a vacuum. It does not work individually. It just doesn't. And if we don't understand that, then we will forever limp along not being able to appreciate the fullness of what it is that God intends for us. And it has to be something that we begin to take seriously and that we genuinely care about. Um, I said to uh, one of the members of our church, we were talking about um, this idea of community. And I said, I said Chris, um, what if one Saturday morning, you didn't know me, but I showed up at your house. I just opened the front door. I came in. I went in the kitchen. I got some coffee. Stood in the kitchen for a second, drinking my coffee. And then after the diuretic kicked in, I went in your restroom. I used your restroom. And then when you turned the game on, I came and I sat down beside you to watch Georgia play Vanderbilt or whoever and just sat there watching the show unfold. Would you at any point ask me who I was? He said, yeah. I said, then answer me this question. Why is it that people can do that in your house on Sunday morning and you don't care? Why is it that people can come to your house, Christ Community Church, our house, and they can just, just kind of drift in and drift out, and we couldn't care. We don't want to know your name. We don't, we're not going to invite you to lunch. We're not inviting you to coffee. We're not welcoming you into anything until you have, I don't know, run the gauntlet, done something. See, it's a communal thing. And this is our house, our house, temporary though it may be. We must begin to understand that we cannot survive alone, we cannot worship alone, we cannot function alone, we cannot grow alone, we can't do any of that alone. It, there is no adequate Jesus and me theology. There just isn't. It doesn't work. And maybe you push against the communal, but remember how the story started. The story was a, a community that was burgeoning and one man and one woman tanked it for everybody. And maybe you don't like that. I totally understand. I don't like paying for somebody else's issues either. I really don't. But that's how it works. Those of you who are fathers, the decisions that you're making today is deciding your children's futures in many respects. My grandfather, who made the decision to do the things he did, had an impact on four generations of people, and it still continues to hurt and haunt. We may not like it, but it just happens to be true, doesn't it? And better that we would embrace it so that the individual failings would not have such grand communal implications because we were walking with each other and we knew each other and we held each other up and we prayed for one another and we prayed with one another and we engaged such in each other's lives that we could tell when you were starting to drift. As it would say in Hebrews, that drift starts off, you're, you're tacking off course just a little bit. But any of, you who, any of you who know anything about sailing or flying, a little bit off course destination is a lot off course. And so we must first grasp the communal nature of this, the communal nature of the Christian life, and we must begin to repent. And this must begin to change for us. 
or we'll just continue to kind of limp along, satisfied with the little bit that we have instead of all that God has for us, with all of our excuses. And so my question to you is, as we open up, because this is where we got to start, is would you describe your Christian life as more individualistic or more communal? See, this is a tough question because it has a lot of layers to it. It's got a lot of aspects to it that you have to fish through and kind of think through and consider. And only the Spirit can show you exactly what this probably means for you. But I can tell you straight away that if you are not engaging anyone else, this is somewhat communal. But not like the other things that we're called to do. Now, we, we had a great group show up for the Art of Neighboring that we're doing on Sunday night. We, we have about 20 people coming to that. And that's very encouraging to me as pastor. But if we don't do anything with it, sound and fury signifying nothing. I do suspect this crew is going to do something with it. And so I, I, I want to I encourage us to wrestle with this question this Lord's Day. Because if, if in your heart you, are, you think that neighbors, that, that fences make good neighbors, or that you, you would much rather do your own thing, just Jesus and you, and you couldn't care less if someone else is suffering or someone else has a need or any of that kind of stuff, that needs to be dealt with. That's a splinter that will get infected at some point, And it is harming you primarily, individually. It does have an impact on the greater group because your gifts aren't being used. Your perspective is not involved. So, that being said, um, we must first consider the opening line of 6-9 where Jesus says, pray then like this. Then what? Pray then based on something that came before like this. So the then, as we remember, is how he told us, don't pray like who? Two kinds of people. He said, don't pray like these folks. Who? Help me out. Hypocrites. What are the hypocrites? What's their main concern? Who's their audience? Their audience is man. Their main concern is themselves, which is radically individualistic, as it turns out. So one thing we missed in that sermon was that one of the things Christ was saying is don't pray like a radical individualist who is only concerned for yourself. A hypocrite who doesn't understand that this thing is communal. Remember that your audience is God and you should pray in such a way that it appears that you're in a prayer closet and can care less what anybody else around you thinks. And then he says don't pray like another group of people. Who's that? The Gentiles, and what was their problem? What did they think prayer was? A mechanism for controlling the Lord their God. If you get the right group of words, it was a technique. It was, they're the ones who would write articles on, this is the effective way to pray. If you say it in these terms. I had a friend of mine one time I was working with who came to work with a book, and the book was How to Speak in Tongues. <laughs> really? That's interesting. So I got the book from him, and it was interesting the steps that it went through. It was like, sit alone in a dark room. Begin with a phrase like, shamalama ding dang, and just kind of repeat that a hundred times. And I don't know what you think about tongues, but regardless of what you think about it, that is, that is unbiblical on every side. There is no foundation biblically for that statement whatsoever. 
And so much in the same way, the Gentiles would, would think that, that God could be garnered or lassoed by their words. They could, if you said enough words, if you said it enough times, if you just pushed hard enough, if you just did all this stuff that was heaping words up that were meaningless, you could get God's attention. Is that true, by the way? Is that how God works? Is he, is he that slow, narrow, shallow? The creator of the universe who thought it was important to give us lightning bugs? Is that shallow? No, he's not. In fact, what's beautiful about this God and how deep his love is for us, remember what Christ said. He, you don't have to do all that stuff because he knows before you even speak your need and he is moving to meet said need. That's how good he is. So, Pray then like this, based on his love for you, based on his desire to meet exactly what it is you truly need, not what you think you need or want, by the way. There's a huge gap there. We can't even get into all that. But he gives you what you truly need and is already moving. You get to relate to him. Remember, this is about relationship, not technique, not law, but relationship. So based on your relationship with God, pray then like this. Hear what Herman Ritterboss, who's a, a Dutch theologian um, and one of my personal favorites, said about the overall character of this prayer. He says, this address, meaning the invocation, lends a twofold character to the entire prayer. On the one hand, it, it pervades it with a childlike trust, our Father. On the other hand, with reverence and an awareness of distance in heaven, such a frame of mind grants God the honor that is his due and grants the person praying the certainty that he will be heard. So it's important for us to cast this, to continue to remember this is relational. So as we look at this invocation, and for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with that term, an invocation is not an inviting of God into anything, by the way. Being that he is sovereign and omnipresent, guess what? He's already there. An invocation is a request that the Spirit would reveal to us what, what is already true, that God is present and in our midst. So this invocation is straight away setting the tone for the whole thing that when we say our Father, we are recognizing the communal nature of this whole thing, our. This isn't just about me anymore. Isn't that good news? Because how many of you with a straight face could say that what you think is best for this whole world and that you've always gotten it right and if they would just listen to you, this whole thing would work a whole lot better for everyone. No, I'm afraid it wouldn't. That's true of me too. But instead, God so graciously says, this isn't about you. The fact that it's communal means it's about him. And when we say our father, there's something so pregnant about that second term that, that Christ wanted us to use it. The, the term is largely not used of God in the Old Testament with the exception of the book of Isaiah. And it's really toward the end when you get into the, the suffering servant speaking and he speaks of God as Father, which we know was Christ. So he was speaking of God as Father even before he came in the flesh. 
And so when Christ uses a term, which he uses it many times in the New Testament, notice that it makes those who are religious around him very, very uncomfortable. Why? Why would calling God Father make people uncomfortable? Because it's a highly relational term. And it means that there is an exchange there. It means that there's access there. It means that you now are an heir. That you are presuming some things about grace. See, they were comfortable calling him Lord. They were comfortable calling him King. They were comfortable calling him Creator. All terms, if you think about it, of distance. But they were not comfortable speaking of him in proximity. Near. Christ had no problem speaking of the Lord as being near to him. What did we read in John 10? I and the Father are one. What a beautiful thing to be able to say. Not a term of arrogance or pride when you know what Jesus knows. Not a term of arrogance or pride when we know what we ought to know. That because of the person and work of Christ who gives us this term, who encourages us to use this term, that he has done what it takes for us to be adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. When we use the term Father, it should resonate deep within us that there is something so beautifully true that we don't deserve to be true. But yes, it is still true that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is not a term that should be casual. This is not a term that is to be thrown around just lightly, but it is a term of great endearment from God to us. And now us in honor and worship back unto him. Amen? If you being able to use the term father doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, you can check your heart. Because it is one of the most critical theological terms in all of the Bible. If it be not true, then a whole lot of other things aren't true either. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says of us praying this term. He says, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, every time we open our mouths and say, Our Father, we should be reminded of our adoption. That we have been grafted into Christ and have been placed in this intimate relationship with God. A relationship that we did not have by nature. When we pray our Father, we are confessing that we have been redeemed and that we have access to all of the spiritual heavenly promises and all of the power therein. Now, I get it. I'm like a lot of you. Sometimes I doubt that. And I don't necessarily know what all of that means. But it's something I think that we should consider on a much deeper level. We have more power than we ever access because of our doubt, because of our pragmatism, because of our radical individualism. And yet, Christ calls us away from those things and offers us this tone setting invocation, our Father, to you the adopted ones, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so, we need to answer the question, consider the question, how is God near and personal to you? You ever thought about that? Because this term says that he is. This truth, the truth of adoption, says that he is. 
Think about what Paul says in Romans 5 is that you have been justified so that you could draw near to God and stand in the grace before him. And who deserves that kind of grace but the child of God? And how are you experiencing God as a father? I, I can tell you as one who, whose father killed himself before I was born and whose stepfather spent most of my life in prison, who is still alive, by the way, and any of you who've been uh, checking in on Facebook, he has reemerged, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I have a very distorted view of that term. I have a very broken view of that term, and I don't even know if I know how to appreciate it. My own failings as a father, one who took on that term in adopting two children, I don't even know some days how to appreciate it. As we sing how deep the Father's love for us, I, I don't have a frame of reference other than God himself. And I cannot wait for the day when I will stand before him glorified because of the work of Christ and at long last can appreciate in full what it means for me to now have the 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 opportunity to say, Abba, Father. To declare, along with those of you who are brothers and sisters, our Father. I know it can be a struggle for many of you, but it is something that we must consider, not in light of the distortions that we have been given by our earthly representations, but instead how deep the Father's love truly is for us. And then the second part of that invocation, where it says, our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus reminds us that while God is near to us as Father, that he is also transcendent from us. He is wholly other than us. Now, why is that good news? Let me ask you, what kind of God would you make? How many towns would you, would you have burned to the ground with your anger as you called down fire from heaven? Because you had the ability. How many people would you strike silent? Because you were tired of hearing them talk. How many would you condemn to the outer darkness to gnash their teeth for an eternity? Because they crossed you, cut you off on the freeway, took something that was yours. See, we make terrible gods. And it's... It is unto our joy that he is utterly different than us. That we could never be only what he can be. We cannot be saved by those who are like us because we can't even save ourselves. Right? So praise God that he is holy. He is eternal. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is not ever changing but unchanging. And that is good news to us that it is our Father who is in heaven. The other aspect of this is very important to us. It means that in locale, we cannot control him. We don't have the final say on who and what he is and who and what he does. Remember what we read in Psalm 115. Remember the question that came up, where is their God? How does the psalmist respond? He is in the heavens doing as he pleases. 
So God being in heaven means that we do not control him despite what we think, despite our pragmatism, despite our wickedness. And this paradox of God's nearness and God's otherness also highlights how incredibly gracious he is to, in Christ alone, cover the distance necessary to redeem us. Knowing what we know about each other, would you do that? Scarcely would you die for someone you care for, much less someone you don't. And yet God overcomes or covers that otherness in the person and work of Christ to make us his own. So when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, we are making a grand claim about the nearness and the distance of God, which is critical for us to understand before we ask for anything. And would that we would, every time we take time to pray, start there. Instead of launching into our laundry list of things because we really don't have time. God, you know who you are. Do I have to tell you every time? Are you that? I mean, come on, man. Let's just, efficiency is the American way. You created us. Let's just do that. All right? I got things to do. Chop, chop. Let's go. And, and if you would, don't ask me to do anything. But I'm going to ask you to do a whole bunch of stuff. Right? All right. Listen to what William H. Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas, two of my favorite Methodists, have to say about this. In their book, Lord, Teach Us, the Lord's Prayer in the Christian Life. This is what they say about this phrase in heaven. Just to pray to a God who is in heaven is a warning against a contemporary domestication of God. Here is a God who is not some pale image of ourselves and our best aspirations. This God doesn't live here in our country, is not housed within our sanctuaries. God the Father rules from heaven. In short, what they just said is, he is not a God you can control. He's not bound by the American dream. He is not bound by the Presbyterian dream. He is not bound by any of man's dreams at all. Amen. So how have you considered the beauty that God is truly different from you. The first question was, how have we considered God's nearness? But we also must consider his otherness and how that's a blessing to us. How he being in heaven is actually good news for us. How he being totally different means that he can actually save us. So as we move from the invocation, our Father in heaven, we move to what is essentially the first petition and it's interesting what it is, isn't it? Hallowed be your name. This is the first thing that, the, that Christ says you should ask for. Feel free. Ask away. After you have invoked his name, pray and ask that his name would be hallowed. Being that this is the first petition, it also indicates that it is God's holiness and glory that are to be our greatest concern. And I have to confess to you, and you would have to confess to me, that's not our greatest concern, now is it? We have far greater concerns. We have far other concerns. He can take care of that himself, right? He left us here for some other purpose, right? In a fallen world, we, we got other stuff to do, like make it look worse. 
No. We were left here as ambassadors of reconciliation to evidence the glory of God as the dark grows ever darker. Woe be unto us that this is not our main concern. It is that we should petition and ask for the reality of God's glory to finally permeate and eclipse the false realities that are all around us. Yes? How many false narratives have we heard in the last few weeks? How many irrealities are we accepting as normative? And our prayer is not, hallowed be your name. We're not permeating. We're not calling for God's glory to permeate things. Because we think we can fix it by law. We can fix it by voting. We can fix it by manipulation. We can fix it by Facebook. We can fix it by Twitter. We, Instagram, right? We can fix it, right? No, we can't. And when we pray this, we're also saying something evangelistic and missional, aren't we? Because how in the world is God's name going to be hallowed if we take our light and shove it under a bushel? How in the world will the world know who we are if we cannot display our love for one another? How will they know? How will his name be hallowed if we are not doing what we were designed and created to do? Remember Adam and Eve's first calling. Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Be fruitful, multiply. Take dominion over the earth. Why? Essentially, God is saying, fill the earth with my glory. Extend the garden temple as far as the eye can see. Fill the earth with all that I am that is good. And they messed that up. And so that meant that we don't have to do that anymore, right? Mm, Well, what's funny about that is that same thing shows up in Genesis 9 for Noah and his family. And what's interesting about that is that same calling shows up for Jacob who becomes Israel. What's interesting about that is it's the same calling that Christ gives as he is departing, though he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28 is essentially saying, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion for I am reigning. Now what that doesn't mean is that we are to become a theocracy, like some are trying. But what it does mean is that we need fear not what man can do to us, but only should fear what the one can do who can destroy both body and soul, whose name ought to be hallowed. So listen at what N.T. Wright says. Now listen, I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright says, by the way. I know it's dangerous to even quote him in some respects for those of you who are worried about that kind of thing. Maybe you were worried about Greg Keener getting quoted. Maybe you were worried about Willimon and, and Howard Ross getting quoted. Maybe you think I'm going off the rails a little bit, but listen to the content. Because the fact of the matter is none of us are all right. None of us. Listen to what N.T. Wright says in the Lord in his prayer. He says, if we take the risk of calling God Father, 
then we are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. And when, and we then discover that we want to pray and need to pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored or hallowed. That is, may you be worshiped by your whole creation. May the whole cosmos resound with your praise. May the whole world be freed from injustice, disfigurement, sin, and death. And may your name be hallowed. See, there's a problem between the now and the not yet. God's name cannot be fully hallowed until Christ returns and fills the earth with his glory and at long last removes all barrier. But between the now and the not yet, it is our calling to give glimpses of what shall be. So when we pray, may your name be hallowed, we're not asking God to do it on his own. We're asking him to empower us to do what we were created to do. So my question is this. What are some of the ways in which you are actively working to hallow God's name? Not accidentally. It, this whole idea, you know, God's sovereign, I'm going to passively just kind of give off some sort of vibe that people are going to pick up on. No. It's ridiculous. What are some of the ways in which you are actively seeking, working to hallow God's name? And what is the result of God's name being glorified in both the now and the not yet? Is it not better for all for God's name to be hallowed? If that is what we were truly created for? And so, let's close out with this. We've got to remember what is most important throughout all of this. Listen at what the great Britain J.C. Ryle says, he says, the glory of God is the purpose for which the world was created. It is the end for which the saints are called and converted. It is the chief thing we should seek. That is confessionally incredibly heavy because that has not been my concern. Too often, I'm not even asking the question. I don't ask the question of hardly anything I do. And I have sought forgiveness, and in Christ, I know how I've received it. And I hope the same for you, too, today, that you would be moved to consider more and more in greater measure what it means for God to be glorified, and that that truly would become our chief concern. Let me, let me, let me ask it this way. What if, in the middle of any fight you've ever gotten into, you paused and considered, hey, how is this glorifying God? Whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with a coworker, whether it's with someone who disagrees with your theological position, whether it's someone who disagrees with your socio-political position, whether, 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 whatever. How would it change things? How would it change how we engage one another if our primary concern was how will this affect the glory of God? That's a, that, is a, that is a paradigm-shifting reality. That changes everything. Because it moves you off of your glory. It moves you off of your greatest concerns. And truly to those of the Father. Think about how it would change how you critique things. 
Think about how it would change how you look at the world all around you and come up with solutions. If the first and primary question, if the primacy was God's glory. Because whether you are or you, you are not, it is. And the question is, will you be working against it? Which brings discipline and judgment. Or, or will you be working with it? Which brings blessing and glory. So, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, 9, these three things. One, that we are adopted as children by God the Father. And that should move us. Two, God is truly other than and above us evidencing his lordship. It is to him that we are to submit. It is to him who is in control. It is him. Three, our primary concern in the Christian life should be our ability to glorify God. How are we using our gifts? How are we using our abilities? How are we using our resources to bring this to bear? And if it is not, then you aren't praying this prayer. You're praying something else to someone else, not God. 